Today's reading is from Colossians 2, 6 through 23. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and in, oh, sorry, sorry, where was I? Which verse? Oh, no. Okay. Faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. Sorry, it keeps closing out. I don't like technology. Oh, wait, I got it. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he sets aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over there in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the reading of the word. You may now be seated. All right. Thank you, Teague. Whoa. And good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. Now, Tig, don't get mad, but next week's passage is only four verses. I'm sorry about that, but you, you handled that really well. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new, I am one of the pastors here. I am glad that you're here. We welcome you. Uh, if you have any questions, we'd love to entertain those with you. Just uh, grab one of us and talk to us. We'd like to do that. There will be opportunities even after uh, uh, the sermon when we get into the, our reflection time, but we are... We are in the New Testament book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae about 61 AD, and he wrote it from a Roman prison. And um, we are taking 10 weeks to go through this, uh, this, this letter verse by verse, and today is the longest passage that we're going to do. So if you brought caffeine, that's good for you. If you didn't, I'll pray for you, but we're going to have... It's going to be a slog to go through it, but we're going to be rooted right in this text, kind of a couple verses by a couple verses um, as we go. Let me review where we are in this passage. Uh, Paul has opened the letter by identifying himself, as he always does, and then he prays for the recipients of the letter. That's verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1. And then in verses 15 through 23, he explains the supremacy of Christ, uh, Christ's character, Christ's deity, that, that he is God and that he is creator of everything and that it is by him, through him, and for him that everything has been created. And then Paul explains how for those of us who are in Christ, who have accepted him, how that's important to us and how we should not only live in light of that, but how we are blessed and valued by God in the midst of all of that. And then last week, we looked at the very end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, which kind of introduces us to this long passage uh, today. Paul explains in those verses last week his own personal ministry to the church and to Christ, and he uses that explanation to set us up for this long passage today. Uh, one of the things that 
I will tell you that I just would caution you on, it doesn't necessarily bug me, but it's important to understand that when Paul wrote these letters, when, in fact, when the whole Bible was written, there, there were no verses, there were no chapters, there were no paragraphs. It wasn't split up like that. The translators and interpreters have done that. And so what we need to remember is that just because a chapter ends and a new chapter begins, it's not necessarily a new thought, especially for somebody like Paul, who is throughout this entire letter, he's just weaving everything together. But what he gets to in today's passage is the nexus of this letter. The problem with all of these worldly philosophies, false teaching, and false gods that that are sort of uh, infiltrating the church at Colossae. And so everything in this letter sort of grows out of this passage that we're going to look at today. And that's why it's long and important that we really understand this. Even um, in June, we're going to have sort of a three-week mini-series in Colossians where Paul deals with marriage, parenting, and the workplace. And we're going to look at those there's only 11 verses for that. We split that into three different weeks, but even that grows out of an understanding of how to push back against these worldly philosophies that Paul is, is concerned with. So I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter two, which we did last week, but I want you to see this sort of how Paul introduces us to this long treatise that we look at today. He writes at the beginning of chapter two, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea, that's another uh, church in another town about 10 miles northwest of Colossae, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul didn't plant these churches, but he's a part of their legacy, and he knows people who are in those churches, and he's been asked by somebody in the church at Colossae to write them regarding these challenges that they are having, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The mystery is the gospel. And the gospel is the fact that it is faith through grace that saves us, or grace through faith that saves us. That, that it is unmerited favor, that we're sinners separated from God, and there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. But by the coming of Jesus, his living his life, his, his crucifixion on the cross, and his resurrection, we receive his grace by coming to him and putting our faith and trust in him. And that's a mystery. It's not a secret mystery, but it's a mystery that's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit and given to us as a great gift when we come to him. Come to him. He writes in verse 3, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we said last week, the greatest treasure is Jesus Christ himself. But in Christ, we also have this secondary treasure of wisdom. And it's the wisdom of Christ that we need to navigate this dark and corrupt world. And we talked a lot about that last week. And then he just starts to introduce this next passage. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's getting ready to tell them the problem that you're enduring in this church are people coming into the church ostensibly Christians, and many of them actually are, but they're, they're giving you false teaching and worldly plausible arguments that have nothing to do with the gospel, and, and you're listening to them and even succumbing to them, being taken captive by them. And he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. So I'm trying to help you out with this, and I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's encouraging them by saying, your greatest weapon against this false teaching and these worldly philosophies is to be rooted in Jesus Christ himself. And then he gets into it. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and build up, built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he transitions into verse 8. And this is the thesis of the entire letter. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That phrase, elemental spirits of the world, can also be translated as the evil spirits of the world. And some translations actually do that. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And I'm going to read verse 8 again in a second. But I want you to see how verses 6 and 7 transitions Paul from verses 4 and 5 into verse 8, and verse 8 becomes the thesis. In verse 6, Paul says, As you have received Jesus, 
So walk in him. You've received Christ. He's in you. You are in him. And therefore, you should live accordingly. Walk out your life accordingly. Live your life under his lordship and his foundation, his power, firmly rooted in the foundation that he gives you. And you look at verse 7 and you see these words, rooted, built up, established. Those are all foundation words. He says your greatest defense against these plausible arguments that will, that will take you away from Jesus, which is a bad thing, is to remain in Christ. Because Jesus is where we receive truth, wisdom, and discernment. Because to navigate a world that we're in that's dark, it's corrupt, and it's working hard to get you on board with its philosophies and principles, we really do need to be rooted in Jesus. So here it comes. I'll read it again. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That language, takes you captive, literally means to kidnap you. You don't want to be kidnapped by this stuff. If, there ever, if ever there was a verse for today, I'm telling you, our world is being kidnapped by all of these worldly philosophies, these plausible arguments that really sound good on the surface but are a problem. Paul was dealing with the same problem 2,100 years ago when he writes this letter. Nothing has changed. He's fighting the same battles, essentially. The world, the culture, you know, everything and everything that, that tries to navigate this world without God, and, and I would even argue often pushes against any notion of God, these corrupt ideas and forces have always existed. But the way these worldly principles, philosophies, and, and uh, policies are packaged and presented and worded, you know, they sound good. They sound plausible. They are certainly seductive, and they also seem virtuous. It, it makes us feel like if we, would, if we would ingrain those in our minds and in our hearts and live them out, that we would be virtuous people. But again, these worldly philosophies, as Paul says, are popular and trendy, but they're erroneously affirmed. They sound good, but we affirm them in error. And those are Paul's words, not mine. These constantly recycled and spruced up worldly philosophies always seem to work, first, uh, work at first as well. That's another problem. At least they work a little bit. But in the end, we need to remember that false gods and worldly philosophies always fail. They always fail us. Here's one example. This is an interesting study that just came out recently, not done by Christians, but uh, written, uh, reviewed in Victor David Hansen's latest book. He says, you know, the, the rules, restrictions, and stigmas in culture that used to exist for sexual proclivities and practices, for orientation, for gender and identity, all of those things have come off. They've gone away completely. Do whatever you want. Build whatever identity you want. Uh, practice however you want. And yet, this study shows that those very people demanding this way of life with no rules or stigmas, they're reporting that they still are not fulfilled in life. It hasn't fulfilled them the way they thought that, they, that it would fulfill them. And, and that's just true of any of these things that we think are going to fulfill. It doesn't matter. It can be sexual proclivities or identities or whatever. For me, it's Cheetos. I'm sure that last bag of Cheetos was going to be the one that would ultimately finally fulfill me. And it doesn't. I just want more Cheetos. That's all it does. I need a bigger bag of Cheetos. That's all it does. You see this, and by the way, insert anything for Cheetos, okay, and you get the drift, okay? This stuff sounds good, though. You think about it, especially this, this 60s revolutionary sexual stuff. It sounds good. And, and it actually, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. Why would there be restrictions? Doesn't everybody know what's best for them? Can't we trust people to know what's best for them, right? That's kind of the argument. But this is why Paul calls these plausible arguments, they're human traditional, uh, traditions, and they're elemental spirits. They sound good, sound like they're no big deal, but we need to remember that Satan is a master liar. And what we also need to remember is that Satan is better at deception than we are at detecting the deception. And that's our problem. And so Paul explains that the only defense... Uh, against any of this is to be rooted in and have your foundation in Christ. The Christ is the only antidote to this deception. If you have his wisdom, you can detect, detect this deception. And so now what Paul does is he spends, 
He spent only one verse really introducing this self-proclaimed worldly things because what he wants to do is get back to explaining that Christ is our foundation and that's our best defense against this. So verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It's interesting, Paul uses this word head to describe Jesus. In chapter 1, he says he's the head of the body, the church, which he is. But here he's saying he's the head of all rule and authority. In other words, he's the head of all... He's, he's, he has authority over the entire creation, over all the universe. And then later in chapter 2, we're going to see that he uses it again when dealing with the body. So Jesus is the head of everything, church and the universe. And this is the received him from verse 6 that Paul comes back to. You have received him, and what you've received in Christ is the fullness of God. God is all in when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our deliverance from sin and our redemption from our old captivities. And yes, we, we were held captive before Christ to this worldly stuff. I was 27 years old when I came to Christ, and before that I was held captive to these worldly things. And these two verses give us the essential reasons to resist the teachings and philosophies of the world and culture. Number one, if you're really truly looking for God, it's Jesus. The fullness of deity dwells in him and only in him. And second of all, Jesus fills us by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, which is where we are, are guided and led. And the world can't do this. The world and the culture can only manipulate us. And that's it. And here, here's a great example of this. Um, I've mentioned this book before, Carl Truman's excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In it, he explains it this way. And... and um, I'm, I'm going to needle on this a little bit. I even have a slide for it. So here you go. Listen closely to this. First of all, he says, uh, it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau who came on. He's the existentialist postmodern philosopher who sold us on the notion of the psychologized self. He explains that the reason that we live in fear is because we've been conditioned to by the structures and organizations of this world which are evil. He fails to mention that those structures and organizations are made up of people, of course, but, but nevertheless, he says, we've been conditioned to live in fear because of the way the world is set up. And so we should chase after the disciplines of the mind in order to fulfill us and, and beat that back. And then he says that Freud adds to the mix and sells us on the notion of the sexualized self. Freud uh, explains that we're all hung up about sex, and if we'd just be free and, and throw off all of the restrictions, then we'd be fulfilled. And then finally, we get to add Karl Marx to the equation, who brings us and sells us the notion of the politicized self, explaining that if we just had the right systems and government in place, utopia would happen, yay. So here's the result, and this is really cool. If we buy all of this, we can be perfectly adjusted, having sex all the time, and be, be taken care of by politicians. <laughs> now, I know that sounds like parody. I know. It sounds like parody. It sounds like an exaggeration. It sounds like an oversimplification. But it's none of those things. That's exactly what the world is trying to do to us. Because in that notion, they have power and control. That's what we're dealing with today. And by the way, what your children, if you have children, that's what they're going to be taught in most of the schools, too. It's something that we have to be ready for. It's never going to end. It's foolishness, and Jesus is the only answer. So Paul continues to lift up the gospel of Jesus in verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh and circumcision of Christ, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful workings of God who raised him from the dead. So now, what's all this circumcision stuff that Paul is introducing? Well, we have to remember that for the Jewish people, circumcision was really important. It was a sign of their covenant with God. It was a sign that they were God's people. And so it was very important to them. It was part of the Mosaic law. And so if you remember, if you were around for the first week... We mentioned in that first week that some of these plots, some of them, not all of them, of these plausible philosophies were actually rooted in the Hebrew Bible. They were rooted in the Old Testament or in personal moral codes. 
And so the circumcision thing was a pretty common thing in, in the early churches. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see that there was some discussion about this even in the book of Acts. Some Jewish converts to the Christian faith taught that even though we had Jesus, we still need circumcision to be truly saved. So they would say, Jesus plus circumcision is what saves you. But that's a false god. That's Jesus plus. Jesus plus anything is a, is a false gospel. It's a false god. Some others were saying it's not just circumcision, but you also have to keep the entire Mosaic law to be saved along with Jesus. What's the point of Jesus if you still have to keep the law? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. Jesus plus the Mosaic law is still um, a false gospel. But in Christ, now Paul has written in some of these other letters, like in Philippians 3, he writes, we are the true circumcision. In Romans 2, he writes that true circumcision is a matter of the heart. And in 1 Corinthians 7 and Galatians 5, he writes that in Christ, by grace, we no longer need physical circumcision. But then how does it relate to baptism? Well, baptism, in a sense, is kind of like uh, circumcision in that it's the outward testimony of the inward reality of our salvation. But baptism is not salvific. It is not required for you to be saved. It's just an outward testimony of the fact that you are saved, that you are now in Christ. And so he says, so what we do is we baptize. When we come to Christ and baptism, he says, is this picture of being put into the tomb with Jesus where we leave our sin and our old self behind and we emerge as new creations, which Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so there's actually language in Romans chapter 6 that we recite when we baptize people here. If you were here on Easter, we baptized nine people, and you would hear us recite that language. As they go into the water, you are buried with Christ in baptism, and you are raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of how your new life is in Christ now. That's where baptism comes in, and that is good news. And all of this work of salvation, redemption, reconciliation, and deliverance is done for us by Jesus on the cross. And then verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, metaphorically, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul reminds us that without Christ we were dead we were spiritually dead. We were separated from God by our sin. So some, some characteristics and definition of sin. Sin is an act of rebellion against God. Sin is a proclamation that we know better than God. Sin is disbelief that God actually has something better for us than, than we do. Sin is, sin is an anti-God state of mind. But now in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creations, not having to live under those same captivities. In Christ, spiritual death has been done away with. We are now alive, and not just alive for eternal life, but now we can discern and understand spiritual truth by the filling of the Holy Spirit and by reading and understanding Scripture. And we need this because of this constant onslaught of false teaching and ultimately ineffective worldly philosophies. But then there's this debt and legal demands language that Paul uses in here, and I think this is really good, too. The word debt is how God describes our standing before him without Jesus. We are in debt to God because of our sin. Our sin makes us debtors to God. The problem is that we can never pay that debt. Even though there's a legal demand in the law of God that we pay back that debt, we can never live up to it. We, it, it can never be done. But now, in Jesus, by the cross and through his resurrection, not only has God removed our debt, but he's also removed the legal document that demands our adherence because Jesus did it all for us. He fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish the law. He didn't cancel the law. He didn't destroy the law, but he fulfilled the law. And so we don't have to. And like I said, that's really good. Paul then buttons up this paragraph of verse 15. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the rulers and authorities are the plausible worldly philosophies, the religious legalistic totalitarians, the structures of the world that we believe will serve us well, and the rulers and authorities are Satan and his minions. And Jesus 
Grace, the cross, has defeated all of them. And that means that we no longer have to live in fear or under the, we no longer have to live under the burden of the world's or religious expectations because we're truly free. We've been made free in Christ. That's, again, that's good news. So Paul, up until now, has been mostly focusing on the plausible worldly philosophy, starting in verse 8, and how Jesus is the answer to that. But as mentioned, there's also this problem of religious, legalistic totalitarianism. So here he begins to deal with that issue. It's, it's, it's another form of worldly philosophy, but it's specific to religious fanaticism. So he begins to deal with that in the church. And not all of them are Jewish. Some of these religious false teachers and fanatics are coming at the church from the perspective of paganism, polytheism, and the local cults. So verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So false teaching in Colossae was not just worldly and cultural, but it was also just simply bad religion. And some were teaching that the fullness of the Christian life consisted in keeping also the Jewish law with regard to food restrictions and observing special days. Others are claiming that in addition to Jesus, people needed to keep the pagan holidays and religious observances and restrictions of the local cults so as not to anger the, the gods. And that's gods, plural, because they were polytheists and they worshiped multiple gods. Others are claiming that in addition to Jesus, people needed to keep the pagan holidays and, and all of that so that they could be found as morally acceptable. And Paul explains that in Christ there is now no need to observe these restrictions or special days, whether they're Jewish or pagan, it doesn't matter. In fact, he says that these things are now merely shadows of the reality of Christ, and shadows have no binding force or power whatsoever. Only the gospel of Jesus has true power. And there are some things that we need to remember here for context that the Bible teaches us. Number one, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus declared that all foods were clean. And that includes Cheetos. I want you to know that. So I'm, I'm like a holy person when I'm eating Cheetos. All right. There's also this dream that Peter had in Acts chapter 10. I'm telling you, you've got to read the book of Acts. It's great. Peter has this weird dream, and, and, and it, it gets interpreted for him. And what he realizes is that what God is telling him is that Peter, this good Jewish guy uh, who kept all the food laws, was, God is saying, all foods are clean now. You can eat whatever you want. And not only that, Peter, Gentiles are God's people too. It's not just the Jews. So you've got to include the Gentiles as well. And then throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the Lord of days, of times, of epochs, and of festivals. And these days and times and festivals don't control our lives because Jesus is sovereign over these days and times and festivals. And as a result, neither the world nor religious, and I put it in quote, authorities have any right to judge you if you're in Christ. No right whatsoever. Christ has saved you. God is the only one that you and I would answer to. Again, that's good news. And Paul expounds on that good news in verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels. Aestheticism is a religious practice where you mutilate and damage your body as a way of making yourself acceptable to God. Okay? So we don't have to do that anymore. So if they're insisting on this stuff, don't do it. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body, the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what Paul rails against here is one of the most common challenges that every church faces. People who claim... People who claim that their way of worshiping Jesus is superior to any other way of worshiping Jesus. They have the only truly God-approved way of worshiping Jesus. And if you don't worship Jesus this way, you're really not a worshiper of God. And that's a problem. You are disqualified if you don't worship Jesus the way I do. They would literally say that. Say, I don't even know if you're a Christian because you're not worshiping Jesus the way, the way I do. Here's the, here's the problem with that, though. Nothing and no one disqualifies the gospel. There is no power that can disqualify the gospel, and we need to remember that. And here's what's really funny about the Colossian religious legalistic false teachers. 
They were claiming that their worship was so righteous and they were so privileged that they actually joined the angels in worshiping God. Well, nanny, nanny, foo-foo. Don't you want to be like them joining the angels to worship God? And like I said, this, this still happens all the time. It's one of the challenges that every church deals with. People coming and saying, you're not worshiping God correctly. Whatever it is that you're doing is wrong. You have to do it this way. And the odd thing is, is that these totalitarian spiritual legalists, they lord their paradigms over others, not based on scripture, but based on their own personal preferences. Every time you ask them, hey, could you give us a passage from the Bible, not Us Magazine, to back, kind of back that up? Okay, no, here, here's, here's an example. So last church I was in, actually happened. Some of you might be, one or two of you, sorry, Munsells, um, might be old enough to remember the worship wars in the 90s and early 2000s. Remember the worship wars? Style, oh, yeah, yeah, the style of music and everything. Oh, electric guitars and drums, they're from Satan. You know, you got, you got demons on the stage. I just, oh, my God. No, no, no. So we were going through that at my last church. So we had two separate... Um, two separate services, which was a pain in the neck, but we did it anyway, and people still weren't happy. But nevertheless, that's just me griping, and you're my therapist right now. Anyway, so, um, so we, had a, we had a pipe organ, okay? And we had somebody who could play it. She was really good at it, and so occasionally she would play it in the first service, and it was beautiful, and it was wonderful, but we also had a piano, and occasionally we'd throw in an acoustic guitar, but we'd put him behind a board somewhere and pretend he wasn't there. So anyway... Um, <laughs> So one day I'm walking down the aisle before the first service started. This, this lady grabs my arm, and she stops me, and she says, Frank, I want you to know something. And she pointed at the pipe organ, and she said, that is the only instrument that God hears in heaven. He can't hear any of these other instruments. That is the only instrument that God hears in heaven. And I kind of chuckled at her because I thought she was kidding. She wasn't kidding. She, wasn't, she wants all the services to just be rooted on the organ. So finally I said, okay, so, so what you're telling me is that God heard no instruments until the 16th century because that's when that was invented, you know. And she, she, was, she didn't have an answer for that. And then, believe it or not, I used to be more combative than I am now. <laughs> I'm trying to repent of that. But then I said, and, and by the way... I, could you come up with... I mean, I've got some scriptures otherwise. I mean, so let me see. So God... God never heard the harp that King David played? Never heard that? Okay. And then what about, what about in the Psalms, all these stringed instruments? And then I think in Psalm 50, there's one of these things. And by the way, it didn't have the holes in it to sort of, you know, mute it. Okay. So I, I, and, and anyway, um, I never saw her again. <laughs> I was more competitive back then. But you, you get my point. Right? Okay, here, here uh, sorry, one more story. I just have to tell you. I have a friend who's a pastor. He was once told he had facial hair. He had like a goatee. Remember when goatees were popular? They're coming back. Okay, so were mustaches. Okay? So a person told him, uh, she said, you don't have the right facial hair to serve communion. She told him that. It wasn't Tyler James, by the way. I just want to make that clear. Okay, it was another pastor, all right? But he had a goatee. See, so you don't have, I'm like, not the right fit. Is there a document written on the proper facial hair for serving communion in a church? I'd like to see that document somewhere, okay? This stuff is just made up based on preferences, but then we doctrinize it and make, try to make people live under that. So Paul admonishes the Colossians. You have to quit listening to this stuff. You got to quit listening to anyone who wants to either add to the gospel or to anyone who would try to replace or, or alter the gospel altogether, Paul says, Jesus is the head, and he's the head of everything, the church and the universe. And as the head, Jesus is the only source of our salvation, wisdom, power, and insight. And we are members of his body under that head. It seems, you know, I'll tell you, it, it seems that everyone always has a better idea than Jesus for 2,100 years. And that just reminds me of what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes over and over and over. There is nothing new under the sun. It's just repackaged and delivered with better technology. That's all. So we start to wrap up this passage, 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. 
So this is Paul further arguing for his position. He says, if you fall prey to these religious legalists, all you're doing is enslaving yourself again to the world and to people and to sin, just as you were before you knew Christ. Do you really want to go back to this life of bondage and a life of constantly being judged by others and falling short because you can never do, do it well enough? And then he wraps it up with verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but are of no value in stopping the indulgence of flesh. So this appearance of wisdom, again, such a perfect term for today. We're constantly assaulted by people proposing these elite, academic, sophisticated ideas that, are, that sound really good but are rooted in foolishness. They're made to sound wise and virtuous on the surface, but they're empty. They're empty vessels. And far too many of us will fall for these deceptive ideas. So we need to stay rooted in Jesus. And the reason is because these worldly philosophies and these religious legal, legalistic totalitarian ideas are self-made. They're made by humans. They're not from God. So run away from them. So, wrapping up. I know, I know that this message, this passage, has seemed to feel a bit pedantic, academic, and didactic. It's all the icks. I get it. But this passage is also one of the strongest, most cogent appeals for Jesus, for Jesus, and argument against foolish philosophies and religious nonsense that we have in Scripture anywhere. Colossians is kind of a forgotten letter in most circles. And yet chapter 1 should be famous for Paul's uh, treatise on the supremacy of Christ, and chapter 2 is famous because of his treatise against worldly philosophies. And, and in reality, this passage should be encouraging to those of us who are in Christ but are constantly assaulted by these worldly ideas and religious pieties. Paul reminds us of these truths, and it's these truths that give us the power and the discernment to see through Satan's deception. And here they are. Number one, Jesus is God. The fullness of God is found in Jesus. Number two, Jesus is Lord. He's the authority over everything. Number three, Jesus is the head, not only of the church, but over everything that he's created. Number four, Jesus is where our life is. Our life is in him. Number five, our wisdom is found in him. Number six, Jesus lives in us and we live in him. There's that two becoming one theology of the Bible taking place again. And look at how often Paul says that in this passage. And then here we go, probably the most important. Our freedom from both sin and foolish nonsense is found in Jesus. Here's the thing. The Christian life is challenging to live. I'll be the first to admit that. But, but everything's a challenge. I mean, isn't everything a challenge to live? I mean, I would guess that we would agree with that. Christian life is challenging to live. But the Christian faith is also not that complicated. Jesus is Lord. We give our lives to him, and he imputes his righteousness and holiness to us. That's good news. He saves us, and we walk with him. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we do thank you for your word and its truth. I thank you every week for that because um, uh, without it, we'd, we'd have no place to go to be able to seek your knowledge and your wisdom that's actually written down for us. But also we thank you for the indwelling, the filling of your Holy Spirit who leads and guides and corrects us and loves us. We thank you for your son Jesus who saved us. God, we thank you for who you are and that you are essentially commander of all of these things. God, thank you for that. God, I pray that our, our faith community would be one that lives with the courage that you give us in Christ, the wisdom that you give by the filling of your Holy Spirit and by the reading of your word. And God, that we would be a, a church that would live to serve our neighborhood and our community and to serve each other and love each other the way Christ loved us. Help us to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So every week we come to this time in our services where we reflect and we respond. We take communion together if our communion servers would uh, please come forward. We also have people who will stand in the wings, um, deacons, elders, pastors, staff. If you need somebody to pray with, if you have any questions, we'd be glad to 
uh, be able to engage you there in the wings, or you can go to the Connect desk uh, back there, or as Tyler said, you can fill out the, the Connect card if you want to do that as well, and we'll get in touch with you. Um, but during this time, one of the things that we do is we come to the Lord's table. Uh, we do this, we try to do this every time we get together, because we see that, although it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive, but we see that in Acts chapter 2, that when the church would come together, they would break bread together. And that bread is, is actually the body of Jesus. On that last night before he was betrayed, he's at the Passover meal and he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. I, I've always, I never said this before. I always wondered, none of the gospel writers record the disciples' reaction to that. But imagine sitting there and listening in the middle of the Passover meal and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. And then when they had eaten the bread, he picked up that cup of wine, presumed to be the third cup, which is the cup of thanksgiving. And he lifts it up and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And he is the new covenant. And it's my blood and it's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, drink this in remembrance of me. And then Paul tells us later that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so that's what we do. And, and when we step out of that aisle and, and come forward, we are doing two things, really. We, we should do it reverently and prayerfully, but, but with, with a sense of celebration. We are confessing that we need Jesus, and that's a good thing. And that's why it should be, there should be some measure of, of um, being somber as we do it. But also it's a celebration because Jesus has done this for us, and in him we have salvation. So when we come forward, we, we get to come forward in joy and gratitude as well. And after you've taken your elements and you are back at your, uh, your seat, uh, when the Spirit leads you, go ahead and stand as we sing these last two songs and join in with us in singing these songs. So we'll do that now.
again that came then came the
pray, let me pray this over us as our benediction for the day. Lord Jesus, we do declare together with one voice that you are our living hope. And so God, I pray that you would be our way, that you would be our truth, and that you would be our life, and that by your spirit, you would help us to discern those things as we go from this place. So I pray your blessing over these people, and I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. Thank you.